Okay, can I have you all open your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah 53. The book of Isaiah, specifically in chapter 53, is one of the most vivid messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, This Old Testament passage that we'll look at here in just a second gives us one of the clearest, most breathtaking descriptions of the incredible um, suffering and power and redemptive love that Jesus would display in the New Testament when he gave his life away on the cross. Um, Isaiah 53 is a, a staggering chapter. This is the chapter that says things like, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This chapter has has tons of passages like this, but I'd like us to look specifically at verse 1. So if you have Isaiah 53, verse 1, you can look at it in your Bibles, or it will be up on the screen This amazing chapter describing the amazing work of Jesus, the the rescuer, the hero of the story, starts out this way. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And then one more time in verse 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Uh, This morning, I'm going to push pause on the teaching series that we've been doing. We've been doing a series here for several weeks on the subject, The Kingdom is Like, and we're looking at all of the references where Jesus described his amazing kingdom and his reality in certain ways, but um, I I was ready to go with that message this week. I actually sent my notes to the media team. I sent my questions to the small groups, and then late in the week, I felt this strong like urging to go a a different direction this morning. And so I I want us today to take a few minutes to process the atmosphere of rejection that we are all living in today. Um, Specifically, I I wanted to talk to you today about canceling cancel culture. Canceling cancel culture. One of the fruits of the times that we are living in today is rejection. Rejection is probably at a peak in our world today, but ironically, rejection is peaking at a time in our society when the rhetoric of love and acceptance and inclusion is at an all-time high. Everybody is speaking the language of love today. Everybody is talking about inclusion and acceptance and tolerance and love, and that's good, except that right below the surface of that, there's a rumbling in our culture. 
right below the rhetoric of love and acceptance and inclusion, there's this, this anger that's about to explode into rejection. You know, anger is not a bad thing in and of itself. Anger is simply the natural response to a perception of injustice. If it's a holy anger, it answers the injustice and it brings healing. If it's an unholy anger, it just blows things up. And it's interesting how every era of human history gives rise to certain language and certain terminology. In fact, sometimes it's kind of fun to think about some of the phrases we use, and we have no idea where they originated. Like, what does it mean to call something a dead ringer? Or, or why do some people say it's raining cats and dogs? You know, we use these, these terms, and we don't always know the cultural context that gave rise to those terms. In fact, you know that on a regular basis, we add words and phrases to our dictionaries based on concepts that emerge in the culture's consciousness. So, for instance, fake news has been officially added to our Cambridge and our Merriam-Webster dictionaries. And yet, a hundred years ago, people would not have known what to do with that. Fake news? News isn't fake. It, 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 you have to know the culture to understand why the culture illuminates something. There, there's a more recent term that's being um, thrown around, and that's the term crisis fatigue. Crisis fatigue is the exhaustion that we feel today because we're confronted every other night by another major world calamity. Wait, wait. Another shooting? Hold on a second. There was another earthquake? Wait, I thought we were talking about Afghanistan and the resurgence of the Taliban. No, that was three weeks ago. We're already on to three new crises since then. We weren't built for that. We weren't designed for that kind of stress and, and that kind of paralyzing fatigue. But, but there's, a, there's a, new, a new term that's been surfacing in this generation and in these recent years and, and it's becoming more prominent in our social consciousness, and it's the term cancel culture. You know, that was never a thing until this generation. Now, there have always been people who disagreed with each other. There have always been people who used their voice to cancel other people's voices. That's always been a thing. But it's never been such a widespread, prominent thing that we've actually given it a name. And think about this. The word cancel means to neutralize. It means to negate the force or the effect of something or someone. So think about this. When I cancel you, I dismiss you. I neutralize you to the point of nothingness. Now, it may seem as simple as unfollow, unlike, I block you on social media, but it's fostering a cancellation, rejection culture. Um, and let's be careful not to think that it's everybody out there that's doing all of the canceling. Sometimes we are the cancelers. And actually, sometimes it's okay to do a little canceling. In fact, Jesus shows us how and when to cancel some things, and we'll look at that in just a second. But, um, but first of all, before we do, what is this cancel culture doing to our world? It's probably doing several things. I think it's probably increasing the anger. 
It's probably digging even deeper divides between groups and types of people. And, and, and even, even at the core of that, I, I think it's, it's increasing rejection. You know, I don't hear people saying today, I completely disagree with you. I, I am totally opposite on every issue from you, but I love you. And so let's talk. And let me know why you believe what you believe so we can all be sharpened in our beliefs. I am not hearing that today. What I'm hearing today is I reject you. And that does something to the soul of a society. That does something to a culture that we're all living in. In English, the word rejected means dismissed as inadequate. And it also means, and for some reason, this just, this just hurts me even to say it. This word rejected means not to one's taste. You are not to my taste. And wow, that hurts, doesn't it? I don't even need to teach the point that rejection hurts because we've all lived it. Has anybody here ever been rejected? We, we've been battling rejection since we were children. You know, our parents may have loved us unconditionally, but we, we felt rejected for some reason. Or maybe they did reject us. We've had siblings reject us. We've had friends reject us. Daylene Whitney rejected us in grade school. Wait, I'm sorry. Did that slip out? <laughs> um, Daylene was my girlfriend like 20 times in grade school. And the reason she was my girlfriend so often was she never liked me for more than one day. <clears throat> she would always send a kid to me with a note. And it was always in the morning. And the note was, um, I like you. Would you be my boyfriend? Yes or no? And I would always check yes and give it to her. And then I was happy all day long. I never talked to her, but I was happy all day long that I was her boyfriend. But then she didn't like me by evening. And so, so you know, we, we have childhood rejections that can stay with us. Or, or as we grow and mature, we have more mature rejections, don't we? We have losses and betrayals and heartbreaks. And there are very few hurts in life that hurt as much as rejection. He was despised and rejected by mankind. In English, rejected means to dismiss as inadequate or not to one's taste. In the Hebrew, when it says that he was rejected, in Hebrew, that word rejected means transient, fleeting, or it means to vacate, which means that somebody was supposed to put down roots beside you, but they packed up and left instead. It means somebody was supposed to be steady in your life and you were supposed to know that they were there, but they were transient. They just drifted away when they were supposed to still be um, at your side. Um, did you understand what I'm talking about? Have we all lived this? If you have been deeply rejected, you know that rejection, rejection has an added bonus to it. It not only hurts us when we're rejected, but rejection has this power to transport us into the realm of fantasy. Because when you reject me, it's not just the sting of rejection, but all of a sudden I'm wondering about everything else you might have said and everything else you might have said to another person. And some of the things I'm struggling with in my head probably didn't even happen. Um, we don't just feel the hurt of rejection, we feel uh, the hurts of imagined rejections. And you know, here's the real irony of our rejection, is that we are probably all far more accepted than we think we are. 
You know, I like more people than I dislike. How about you? I, I know there are some people, when you think of humanity, some people say, I don't really like people very much. Okay, that's fine. But if you get down to the 50 or 60 people that you actually know, you, you probably like more of them than you dislike. And even when we totally disagree with someone, we don't usually have an active dislike of that person. We actually aren't rejecting each other as much as we feel like we are. But when rejection starts to work at us, it steals our perspective. For instance, um, this last week, I think, I was meeting with a group of pastors from the area. And in this little pastor group, one of the pastors, really great guy, we had a great conversation. And later in the day, I had a phone call with another leader who knows this guy. And since I knew there was a connection, I said, hey, earlier today, I saw him, and we had a talk, and he's really great. And this guy said, oh, he's awesome. He's an amazing preacher. And when he said, he's an amazing preacher, something came up in my heart, and I thought, am I not? <laughs> and we weren't even talking about me. I wasn't even in the conversation. And yet, when I feel a little bit rejected, when I feel a little bit stung, by people or situations that are supposed to be solid, but they pack up and, and walk away anyway, I start to view the world through the lens, first of all, of myself, which is not a good thing, and second of all, through my rejected self. And, and we, we need to change that. Cancel culture is feeding that. It's adding to that. When people are dismissed for their ideas rather than engaged around their ideas, it feeds a strong undertow of rejection. So let me have you go to Ephesians 1, and let me give you my big idea for today. Here's the big, amazing reveal for today's sermon. I think we should reject rejection. I think we should actively and intentionally cancel the cancellation current that is at work in our world. We can't fix the world, but we can micromanage our little corner of how we handle this aspect. I think we should push back on this and recognize that this is something that is eroding our culture and eroding our own souls. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, I love this passage. Verse 3, actually. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's the one who has been despised and rejected. So he knows what rejection from mankind feels like. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. That's the opposite of rejection. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's another acceptance term. I wanted you. I adopted you. I chose you for sonship, for, for mature son or daughter relationship through Jesus Christ. And I love this, in accordance with his pleasure and will, which means he wanted to do this. He didn't just love you because he's God and God is love. He loves you because he actually wanted to love you. He wanted you on the team. You didn't get chosen by default. You know, if you've ever been picked last for a team, you're never actually picked last for the team. You're just taken because there's no other option. He didn't just take you because there was no other option. It was his pleasure and his will. 
And then it says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one that he loves. This is the NIV. In the old King James Version, it says that he has made us accepted in the beloved. And the word accepted in the Greek language is primarily used to describe a pursuit. Accepted in the beloved, the word means to pursue. It's the opposite of being transient and fleeting and vacating the scene. It means I'm chasing you. I'm pursuing you. I want you. This is the heart and the nature and the character of Jesus, and this needs to be the embodiment of what radiates through the church. In fact, I was thinking about all of this, and I was thinking, I could only remember one instance in the scriptures where Jesus blatantly canceled someone. He exasperated people, and he got exasperated with people, you know, his disciples. He, he argued with people, Pharisees, religious leaders. There were times when he wouldn't um, dignify a question with an answer, like when false witnesses were accusing him during part of Pontius Pilate's interrogation. But there's only one time that I can find in the New Testament where Jesus actively just dismissed a person. And it was in his interaction with King Herod. Let's just look at it real quickly. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 occurs during Jesus' interrogation, right before his crucifixion with Pontius Pilate. After Pilate examines Jesus, it says this, Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because he'd been wanting to see him. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus didn't even acknowledge Herod. Herod was the one who had executed John the Baptist. He silenced the voice of the one that was trying to call the nation back to God. And he did it in a super creepy fashion. It was Herod's birthday. His stepdaughter was dancing in front of him and a group of dirty old men. And he got all enamored and said, wow, whatever you want, I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. It's never a great move. And she asks her mom, what should I ask for? And mom says, ask for the head of the prophet on a platter. So she does, and he does. Jesus had no trouble talking with atheists, with fundamentalists, with legalists, with lepers, with Roman officers, or the most rejected people in society. Jesus engaged with them all, but he didn't have two words to say to King Herod. Now, earlier, he actually described his view of King Herod. Real quickly, I'll read you in Luke 13. In verse 31, it says, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus, and they said, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And that makes sense. You know, I killed his cousin. I killed the prophet. I'll kill this prophet too. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Do you remember when Nehemiah was helping 
The people rebuild the broken down walls and gates of Jerusalem after their exile. And they made a little bit of progress, but it wasn't going super great. And their adversaries started taunting them. And one of them said, what are these feeble Jews doing? If even a little fox climbs up on that wall, it's going to collapse all of their efforts. When Jesus evaluated Herod, remember, it was, it was this Herod's father who massacred the baby boys when Jesus was born. Pontius Pilate was simply trying to keep the peace. He did not have a vendetta against Jesus. Herod, from the beginning, was trying to subvert the kingdom of God. The Herods went by the title King of the Jews, even though they weren't Jewish. Herod embodied the spirit of the age that wanted to shut down the advancement of the kingdom of God. And Jesus saw that spirit at work and dismissed it. Now, that's the pattern that Jesus left for us. He engaged with people from any background, any perspective, but he resisted the demonic spirits that were trying to overthrow the influence of the kingdom of God in the world. Herod was more than a person. He was an embodiment of a counter-movement in the nation of Israel. He wasn't a descendant of King David. He wasn't a legitimate ruler. Just as Satan and hell are not legitimate rulers of this planet, Herod embodied something more than just a flesh and blood person, and Jesus resisted that spirit. So in light of the pattern that Jesus set, what do we do? We engage with people from every single background with the love, the acceptance, the, the, the delight, and the grace of Christ, and then we resist the forces in our world that are trying to hold people back from knowing God. How do we resist? We resist in prayer. We resist in devotion. We resist with the lives that we live and the virtues and the ethos that we embody. And, and I know this is a risky little spiel here because some people might think that um, forwarding angry Facebook posts is how I resist the spirit of the age. It's not. See, right before cancel, there's another thing that happens. There's always a step right before cancel. And that step is in your face. If I throw my beliefs in your face, you're going to cancel me. But the approach that Jesus gave us was different. The, the approach that Jesus gave us was, listen, let's engage. Let's talk. And listen, if you want to cancel me, after an intellectual, loving, kind, robust discussion about Jesus, cancel me. But let's have the conversation. And let's relate in a way where the conversation can be had. And, and, and I, I think the church just needs to say, we see what's happening. And first of all, we are not going to add to the angry rhetoric. We're not going to sign our name on a dysfunctional cancel culture. But we're also going to recognize that, that we need to embody the acceptance and the love of Christ while realizing that we're here to pray and contend to see God's kingdom come into the earth. It's a little squishy. Sometimes you don't know if I'm, am I in the flesh, am I in the spirit, how exactly do I do this? But this is our hour, and this is our task, and this is our call. And I'll have the worship team rejoin me here. Um, I hesitate using this illustration because... I hate anything cheesy, churchy, Christian-y. I would never be you know, trite or flippant with the cross. But I think it's interesting that crucifixion victims were executed in a stretched out posture. 
When Jesus gave his life for the world, he, he was in a stretched out, arms wide position. And that's a pretty vulnerable position to be in. If, if you look at this position, think of all the places you could hurt me right now. To live with arms stretched wide. And listen, we are called to that. I mean, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. But he said, I want you to love your enemies. So I want you to live stretched out, extending the grace and the life of God, even if it's risky, even if it's tricky. And, and, and there's two ways to take the, the message and the word today. One, if you have been experiencing rejection, his arms are stretched wide. He's chasing you. He's pursuing you. He wants to adopt you. He wants you to push back on rejection. He wants you to bathe your heart and soul in the acceptance and the mercy and the love of Jesus. That's number one. Is, is God wants to just kind of leech that rejection out of your soul. But then on a larger cultural level, but we're his hands and his feet. God is visible through his church. And we need to show the world what Jesus would look like, arms wide, engaging, talking, connecting, reaching every single person from every single circle of life while realizing that we're in a battle. So we're people of prayer. We're people of faith. We're people of devotion. We're people of holiness. And you were trusted to live in this generation. You could have a pompadour right now in the 1950s. Some of you did. You could be living in the wild, wild west. He planted you now. This is our time. This is our hour. So